Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. And thank you for joining this online resource. My name is Bissia Bamakin. I'm a theology PhD student at the University of Exeter. Um, today we are joined by Dr. Anu Ranawana, sorry, <laughs> um, who is a theologian and political economist. And she's going to be joining us to discuss the theory of uh, the theory behind decolonization. So uh, thank you for joining this discussion. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Um, so yeah, please tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and what your research specialisms are. Thanks, Chrissy. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I absolutely love anything to do with Exeter, so I'm really um, honoured and excited and all of those sorts of things. Um, so a little bit about me. Um, you said I'm a theologian and a political economist. I also always like to say I'm a postulant theologian because I'm really kind of um, uh, still still on my journey um, as a theologian. Um, a lot of my work and my background has been in international development um, as a researcher in international development, um, but also working um, in the terms of looking at aspects of global justice. Um, so in a sense, I come, mm -hmm. I come to theology um, from uh, sort of from the ground of global justice. Um, so I'm very, very sort of rooted um, in all of that. Um, so because of that, I wear uh, about six different hats at the moment. Um, I'm a research advisor for Christian Aid. Uh, I'm doing a project at the University of St. Andrews um, where I'm looking at um, the importance of storytelling to um, anti-colonial feminist theology um, in uh, Asian culture. Um, and I also teach a little bit at the Queen's Foundation on um, aspects of justice and mission. So I juggle a few different things. And um, so that's, yeah, that that's me. Amazing. I also wanted to ask you, like, so how did you get, how did you get involved with like decolonial work and that kind of thing? How, like, how, how did you get involved in it? Um, in, well, I mean, in the sense that I think um, I've always been something that I've I've thought about uh, being someone from Sri Lanka, which um, was a, a former, uh, not only a British colony, but a Dutch colony and a Portuguese colony. Um, so you th always think about who you are as a colonized subject, um, because there's the kind of internalization of, 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 of the colony doesn't really go away, even, even, even after independence. So in that sense, I think that's always a part of, of your conversations. And um, I think, in trying to understand one's intellectual as well as sort of personal identity, I started reading, um, as 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 we all do. I started reading uh, people who had been writing on this issue, so people like Sylvia Winter or Amy Césaire or Fanon, um, who opened up these questions that you know you'd always always been trying to to find out about yourself, to find out about your country, to find out about um, the global scape, um, and so. You know, in that sense, uh, one of the things that, that these sort of writers do, these thinkers do, is that they push you to say, um, to, to push you beyond your kind of boundaries of, you know, what do you know? What what don't you know? Like, mm. are you sure of the ground you stand on? And that's kind of incredible. But I think what's really sort of affirmed me um, uh, and, and, and forced me to, to be passionate about um, this kind of work has also been being involved in social movements. 
because really that is where um, I, that is where the theory of the world is written in social movements, the creativity of of social movements. Um, people who you know for longer than you or I have been alive have been asking for a different world, and it still hasn't happened. Um, you know, um, communities, fisher communities, farm communities that are at, you know, dealing with the with everyday problems and crises, and they're so, I hate the word resilient, but they're resilient and they're strong, and they create solidarity in those moments. And so, you think, because of because of this, we we need to be working for a different way in which our our communities are are existing you know, yeah. and not just existing, but thriving. So yeah. it's a combination of, of two things. So on, on that note, talking about like social movements and stuff. So the, the topic of this discussion is about the theory of um, decolonization and about some of the misconceptions around that. So I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about um, the actual theory behind it and some of, some of the misconceptions that are, are that are surrounding that. Um, yeah, thanks, BC. So, um, so decolonization has sort of two aspects of it, right? There is decolonization that unfolded in two phases politically. So from 1945 um, through till about um, the late 60s and 70s, we see, you know, uh, uh, the, the colonized peoples of, of, of Asia and the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa were claiming their sovereignty. So there's that physical aspect of, of, of decolonization that occurred um, uh, in terms of the, the, the demands of independence from various colonies, right, um, against essentially the European colonizers. But then the other aspect of decolonization is that it is an unfinished project, mm. right, um, which is what, um, which is the phrase I take from uh, Professor uh, Ndlovig Acheni, who's a South African um, academic. He says it's, a, it's an unfinished project because what decolonization is, is uh, as a, as an intellectual and emotional and political project is trying to do is not only kind of protesting coloniality, but it's also saying we need to de-link ourselves from the political and knowledge systems that are entrenched within us. Mm -hmm. Because these knowledges, these politics were not created for the pluriverse of people, it was essentially uh, an entrenchment of the European project. Mm. It was ascribing humanity as a particular kind of human, right? Mm -hmm. So that persons of color, especially black persons, were seen as disposable, mm. as things. So that land and ocean and air was seen as property, mm. as disposable as something that you conquer. So these great theories of salvation that the European project gave us um, was only for a particular kind of society and a particular kind or version of the human. Mm, yeah. So the first thing we have to do is to de-link ourselves from that, mm. to reject it in a way, to disobey these this idea of, of, of the human. Mm. And then the next part of the project is the reclamation um, of what was lost, of what was silenced and what was marginalized, you know, of of re-engaging with indigenous cosmologies, which have always existed, 
mm -hmm. um, which have have continued to thrive and to live, but have been ignored. Yeah. You know, um, it's about building, um, you know, what Sylvia Winter calls an ecology of knowledge. You know, which is such a beautiful and, and brilliant way of phrasing it. Um, I think she's one of my um, favorite um, writers and, and thinkers at the moment um, in terms of, of 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 how she's hopeful in the project. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think one of the, the, the misconceptions, I think, is that decoloniality or decolonization is um, just about being more diverse. It's mm -hmm. not actually, it's about transformation. It's yeah. about this kind of complete um, change that we need to go through politically, morally, and intellectually in that sense. And can we do it? I think is the bigger mm -hmm. question, right? Mm -hmm. Can we can we reject what we know? Can we refuse what we know? Mm -hmm. um, and in doing that, we might then make things like the university, for example. The university is, I mean, Pretty much anyone who, who works on, on decolonization will, will say the university is a colonial project. Mm. Um, so do we have to reject the idea of the university? And that's a hard thing for those of us who are in the academy to do. Mm. <laughs> so what do you think are some of the practical things that need to happen within the, the academy in order to move forward from the place that we're in? I think um, it's difficult, isn't it? I think that the first thing that we can do um, in the university is to look at the ways in which we structure and, shall I say, center knowledge, right? Mm. So um, if you look at, this is going to sound really, really crude and I talk about it all the time, but look at funding for research. Mm. At the moment, we know that if you want funding for research that comes from research councils, wherever they are based, all that money is concentrated in the global north at the moment. Mm. And it's nigh impossible for a researcher based in the global south to become a principal investigator um, and to lead their own research project. They are dependent on their colleagues in the north. Mm. which means that the power of who designs the project, who wants to ask the question, and whose knowledge is paramount, is always going to be in the global north. Even if, oh. it's, a, if it's a southern researcher who's based in the global north, you, 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 don't have, you don't know whether that person isn't from a particular elite community. You know, mm. what about, um, and we also don't disperse, we don't um, diffuse funding enough so that those who are non-academic yeah. can actually lead, you know, uh, thought leadership. We don't do that enough. Um, mm. If it was up to me, I would simply give a pot of money to um, a social movement and say, you guys design the project, mm. well, you know. Um, <laughs> that would be, I mean, I think one of the, that's one of the first and fundamental things that we need to do. Um, other things that I think we need to do practically in the academy is to walk away from what I call <coughs> the fetish of English. Wow. You know, so much of academic publishing, what we read all the time is in English or wow. in, you know, European languages. And the thing is, language is, you know, this is why Derrida talks about, you know, there's no outside text because language structures and places strictures on how we think about things and how we do things. You mm -hmm. can take a particular concept, you can take the concept of Ubuntu, uh, or you can take the concept of, um, you know, uh, 
think now. Sorry, I can't think of a word now. But you say, say you take Ubuntu and you tra you translate it over into English. You can do that, but what do you lose in the translation? Right? Are you actually centering that knowledge or are you translating it or codifying it into English? So these are things that we need to to be thinking about. How can we ensure a pluriverse in which we're publishing in different languages, we're engaging in different languages, we're allowing, um, you know, how many scholars or, or researchers in social movements are not able to really come in and be seen um, in the spotlight at the university because they're not able to, to present in English? or French or German or you know uh, uh, what it is um, and and I think in so this is such a huge thing I think one of the big conversations I think going on in publishing right now is the fact that a lot of researchers from the global south uh, are aren't able to publish because they don't really pass um, peer review in terms of language or something like that. Um, I actually um, was asked to review a journal article and one of the things I had to tick off on the form was the quality of English. And I literally wrote there saying someone's quality of English should not be um, equal to their intellectual capacity. Wow. And I think that's something that we can also do as researchers, as reviewers, as members of the epistemic community. Right. So those are just a couple of things off the top of my head. But I know you're an academic as well. So what do you think are sort of the practical challenges and the difficulties of working in the in the university as we know it? I think it's, for me, the biggest uh, biggest challenge is just the fact that we as a society are kind of socialised into thinking that Western epistemology is the centre of the universe. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was teaching some sixth form students um, just a couple of days ago and I was just introducing the concept of Afri African epistemology and different ways of yes. knowing and bless their hearts it was kind of that sense of like huh like why why is it valid you know yeah and it, and it was it was genuine it, I mean they're not being pretentious or they no 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 yeah like what do you mean and I, and I think it's the way that we are taught from from when we were, were young that this is knowledge this is how to be intelligent and and it's not contextualized mm. um i think for me if if i were to change anything i would um especially with young people i would just make sure that everything you teach them is contextualized and there's a sense that you know western ways of knowing and western knowledge doesn't need to be contextualized because it's kind of it's the norm exactly it's not sorry yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and i'll try to explain to the young people that it's not like i'm saying to throw out western epistemology and western ways of knowing because as a black Nigerian a woman from, of, of heritage, um, a, a lot of my work at the moment is actually kind of use, using kind of Western epistemology. So, for example, um, African epistemology is very much oral and things are passed down orally, which is amazing and, uh, yeah, incredible. But actually, um, so my father, for example, he has so much knowledge and history. And so I'm trying to actually write some of that down. Oh, amazing. Um, so, you know, it, it's not that we can't learn from Western epistemology or I'm saying you should chuck it out. But I think it's about just having um, everyone having an equal stay at the table and everyone being able to contribute and us learning from each other. Um, there's so much we can learn from like African ways of knowing, Asian ways of knowing. And I think it's just a bit sad at the moment that I feel like our students are almost robbed of that opportunity to, to have a, a wider perspective. Um, and I think it's important because they're going to be going into the workplace, going to be the future leaders, the future politicians. And, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I think want them to have a narrow view of the world or a very Western centric view. Um, yeah, that's kind of 
but that's my heart really for the academy in the next couple of years that there can be a real change that young people can actually realize that okay this is the way I view the world great but let me hear how you how, how do you view the world and that's just as valid as mine um yeah absolutely I mean I love that because that's really very much about you know um how do we create a pluriverse of knowledge yeah right um that sees all of these knowledges, whether they're within an educational institution or outside of the education, whether it's in the West or it's in the East or the South, as all equal, you know, as all saying something about the condition in which we live. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of, um, I mean, I, 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 I very much, you know, hold on to a lot of, you know, um, like Buddhist uh, uh, thinking about the importance of experience as a kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, and I think we've moved we've moved so much away from that. And it's it's wonderful that you talk about you know oral cultures and storytelling. So much of the wisdom of our ancestors comes to us through storing, storytelling, yeah. and that's knowledge. It's absolutely yeah. knowledge, even though it's yeah. not like we've not done a literature review of and the gaps in the literature and presented it. It's beautiful knowledge, and it's 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 not only experiential knowledge; it's also historical knowledge, isn't it? Hmm. Right. Yeah, definitely. So um, as we come to a close, um, what kind of uh, practical things would you uh, say to the people that are, that are watching this that they need to consider when it comes to decolonialism and whether they're academics or non-academics, um, what would you kind of implore them to, to think about? Um, the first thing I would say is read, um, read uh, vertically and read horizontally. Wow. Um, I find that one of the things that helps me a lot is not only to be reading academic texts, um, but to be reading novels read the novels and the stories of people who have gone through things and I think that's 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 really really important um I think it's important for those of us who are academics to not think ourselves above from social movements we need to be part of social movements Mm. um and we need to be allowing those social movements to be teaching us I think the most important thing is building radical community yeah if you're mm-hmm. not in community, you're not listening and you're not really sharing and wow. learning. Um, you know, I think there's one of the difficulties, you know, we talk about the academia is an ivory tower, but even in that ivory tower, we we don't build community. So community is, mm-hmm. is so incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also about asking you, when you're reading a text uh, or when you're engaging with something, constantly ask that question of what here do I not know Mm, yeah what here do I need to refuse like where is this coming from you can um you know um a lot of black theologians talk about you know reading with a in (laughs) with a framework of a hermeneutics of suspicion we can be suspicious of the texts that we're reading contextualize your texts all of them not only the ones that come from you know as you say from the the non-west contextualize the western text so mm-hmm. you can still read bath and you can still read uh, kant or you know merleau ponty um but contextualize them yeah why not that's so good you know so those are the things that i think you can do that's so good so yeah thank you so much for this discussion Annie. i think it's been so um, amazing to just realize that actually a lot of this stuff that has been kind of theorized through the academy about you know decolonial stuff actually started in grassroots community yep. 
you know it started in social communities and so I think um thank you so much for enlightening us on that I really appreciate it so um what are your social media handles how can we keep a you know look, look at what you're doing all the exciting things that you're up to um yeah my, I'm on Twitter um although it's a, a bit crazy my Twitter but you're welcome to follow me it's at a-r-a-n-a-w-a-n-a-2-5 so do give me a follow ask me a question um and um mostly what I'll do is tell you who the fantastic people are in the world who are doing all of this work and who to read and who to be a part of so you're definitely one of those people so. oh no no I'm not really <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us I really really appreciate it and um, thank you guys for watching uh, please check out the website for other really amazing resources on decolonialism. Um, okay, so bye. Thanks, Missy. Bye. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between. <laughs>